0: This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bauerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved
1: joint control. Hello, and welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. This is Jennifer Milner, here with co-host Dr. Linda Bluestein. Before we introduce today's guest, we'd like to first remind you about how you can help us help you. First, subscribe to the Bendy Bodies podcast and leave us a review. This is helpful for raising awareness about hypermobility and associated disorders. Second, share the Bendy Bodies podcast with your friends, family, and providers. We really appreciate you helping us grow our audience in order to make a meaningful difference. This podcast is for you. Today we are so fortunate to be chatting with psychiatrist and performing arts medicine specialist, Dr. Bonnie Robson. Bonnie has served as a consultant to numerous ballet schools and companies, has performed original arts related research and is a popular invited speaker at national and international conferences across the globe. Her mindfulness approach to performance and psychological skills training programs have been included in the curricula of numerous universities and postgraduate arts programs. In addition to serving on the editorial board for the journal Medical Problems of Performing Artists, Bonnie has served on numerous committees and boards, including the PAMA Board of Directors, the IADAMS Education Committee, Healthy Dancer Canada Membership Committee, and the Dance USA Task Force on Dancer Health. Bonnie has received numerous awards for her contribution to arts education, including a Lifetime Achievement and the Bill Dawson Award. We spoke with Bonnie previously on what has been our most played episode to date, episode 10, Cultivating Psychological Skills. Today, we are speaking with Bonnie about perfectionism. Hello, Bonnie, and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Thank you so much i'm really pleased to be here we're thrilled to get to talk to you yes so bonnie let's start with some definitions what is perfectionism is it a personality trait is it a psychological attitude what are we talking about
2: yeah perfectionism is is what we're going to address today and hopefully leave with a better understanding it can be described as a pursuit of excellence or the search for perfection itself. Dancers tend to be perfectionistic. So that's why we're talking about it. So do individuals who have perfectionistic traits select dance training because of its exacting standards or do people who study dance learn to set higher and higher uh, goals for themselves or demand more of themselves? Another way uh, we think of perfectionism is learning to be self-critical, often employing self-talk. And then there's a multi-dimensional model that can be a combination of three types of perfectionism. And it's uh, the self-oriented perfectionism, the other-oriented, and the socially prescribed. Um, so that's a lot of confusion, but the you know about the self-oriented one. It's the classic one where you worry and I'm gonna get it right and you make excessive demands on yourself. The other oriented, the dancer sets standards for those around her. This is interesting. She says, they aren't doing well enough. The teacher should be clearer. She's not counting right. And so how can I possibly meet the standards when others are not meeting them? And the socially prescribed in which the dancer experiences intense pressure from all those around her to live up to their ideals. I couldn't face my mother if I don't do well. Um, The dancer believes that those other people hold those uh, ideals and and tries to to live up to them.
1: I've never heard it broken down into three different um, descriptions like that, self and then the people around them and then trying to live up to other expectations, but that's such a clear image. Um, and I know that people with hypermobility and hypermobility disorders tend to suffer. We have higher numbers of um, anxiety and perfectionism and OCD, which is why Linda and I wanted to have this conversation. So we are so grateful that you are having this conversation with us, um, because that describes you know me at various stages of my life. All three of those describe me at various stages of my life. So I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to, but especially it seems not just me as a person, but as a dancer. Um, It seems like dancers are definitely tend towards perfectionism, whether it's perfectionists gravitate towards dance or dance makes us into perfectionism. It's hard to know which one it is there. Uh, or which one came first, but are there any um are there any gender differences are, is it, do you see perfectionism more in men than in women or women than men, or is it kind of equal
2: yes there's that and and I just want to pick up on your idea that um, uh, perfectionism in dance we're going to explore more of that, and you talked about anxiety. think about perfectionism and think how closely linked they are to anxiety and and then we'll explore that duality. And you're right, Uh, female dancers are more perfectionistic than males, Um, and more than other artists, uh, both students and professionals, uh, except for perhaps some musicians who are very perfectionistic in their individual uh, pursuit of excellence. And uh, female dancers are even more perfectionistic than athletes. Uh, who I
0: think of gymnasts who have to do those turns. Um, so yes, there is a gender difference. Interesting. And I wonder what attracts us to dance. Cause Jen, I was thinking the same thing that, yeah, that can describe me, you know, and as a dancer being drawn to dance because of those exacting standards, but then that may be making us expressing that trait even more in that environment. So chicken and egg, but then also like you know, causing it to be even more exaggerated because of the environment that we're in. So mm-hmm.
1: that's interesting. But there's, there's also something very comforting about those boundaries and about, about those impossibly high standards. Um, at least there was for me as a dancer to say, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to try to achieve this, this, and this. It was almost comforting just to be able to see that and to know I've got this uphill climb but I see what I see those expectations so clearly laid out. So while we understand that a lot of times it's negative, there was some comfort to that for me as well to have that there. Yeah, definitely.
2: And, and about anxiety, I heard one teacher say you always, and you feel good. You always come back to the studio. It's safe in the studio. And so that's where you get the comfort. You know what the next many, uh, Movement practices do not have a predictable uh, pattern to the class, but ballet has a predictable pattern. You know what's coming next usually. And uh,
0: that's comforting. That's interesting. So the the routine, you know, you always start with, you know, plies left and tendus and left hand on the bar. And yeah, I, as you're saying that, I feel like I'm going back to my childhood and I can picture that, that comfort of returning to home. I mean, it was really a second home for me. So that's really interesting. So the perfectionism trait can be negative, of course, but is it ever a good thing? Is there, is there anything wrong with setting high standards or trying for, you know, the perfect arabesque, for example?
2: As with many things, a little can be a great thing. For example, I was thinking of music on the radio and you hear a song. Oh, that's the one I like. And you turn the volume up a little bit oh, and it feels good. And I'm going down the road. Oh, I have some more and I'm really <laughs> enjoying it now. And then I'll, I'll turn it up just like, Ooh, Ooh, that's unpleasant. And a little bit more, it's really uncomfortable. Turn it up even more. And the ENT specialists tell us you're going to have tinnitus, and you risk deafness. And certainly the musicians have to be very aware of that, They uh, that they don't suffer an early uh, deafness because of uh, high volume. So that happens in dance with perfectionism as well. That's just an illustration, but you think of an inverted U or a little mountain here. And as you start out in dance, um, you're using the you principle or the Dobson principle. We sometimes think, and you're seeking high standards. You said you get focused and you get concentrating and you try and do better and you actually feel better. And it's progressing and it's better and better and better until you do that perfect pirouette. You are so pleased. I can try just a little harder. I'll just throw a little more energy into it. And what happens? Bonk. So, You increase to the peak performance and after that, there's deterioration and fall off
0: uh, in the performance. That's very interesting. So is there such a thing as as good perfectionism then or bad perfectionism? And how can we tell the difference between the two?
2: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Um, There's good perfectionism and and those of us in psychology like to talk about it as positive, normal, facilitating. Uh, The dancer, just as you've described, has pleasure in going to the studio and trying to read. Maybe today is the day I'll get my splits. I've waited, I've worked at it. The goal of having a trait encourages a dancer to be organized on time, warmed up and focused. And teachers love that. Um, So, But there's also negative perfectionism uh, as you expected. And we call that neurotic debilitating, or maladaptive. It's an all or none attitude. Either you're perfect or you're not. And the per- person tends to devalue their accomplishment uh, and focus on what they have yet to achieve rather than see I'm approaching uh, getting a perfect period. I'm approaching it so much better. I'm not falling over. Uh, I, I'm actually balancing. This is great. Oh, I didn't make it yet. Ugh, I'm such a slob. When am I going to get this? Everybody else has got it. Or they have an I should syndrome. I should do better. I should have been less tense. I should have been brighter. And I bet you've got some examples of the I should person. Can you think of somebody that this is affected negatively?
1: Absolutely. I was just thinking about that. Um, when I work with dancers, a lot of the times you you see them deal with the shoulds rather than the accomplishments. And, and for me, it's this is definitely not um, like the medical definition of it, but for me, it's whether or not your perfectionism is personal or um, sort of a clinical tool that you use. Like you described, you can have that perfectionism that brings you up to this point, and then you're, it's not personal, so you can step away from it. Um, Just yesterday, actually, I was working with a a lovely dancer who's at a quite high level. And she was working on some famous pirouettes from the Black Swan uh, variation. And it's quite complex going into this second piece of the pirouettes. And she and I were working on it together. And she said, you know, I can't get it. I have this, this, and this. And we worked on it together. And she got to this point where it was almost quite there. And then we did it again. And she did it again. And it was beautiful. And she just sailed through it. And the look of satisfaction on her face... And I said, do you want to do it again? She goes, no, I'm good. And I was like, look at that. It was such a healthy way. She didn't get frustrated. She didn't get angry when she was working through it. She just tried it again and she fixed something else. Um, And that's to me is that sort of impersonal perfectionism that you, she could use that as a tool and then set it aside. And for so many dancers that, that sense of, I didn't get it and I'm getting frustrated and I should do it again until." I do get it and it does get perfect. And of course, the more that you try to do it, the more that you push yourself and don't look at your own personal warning signs that you're getting frustrated, impatient, that you're starting to throw yourself through it, um, that you're not being careful physically, Um, it's become personal and you can't stop until you feel like you've achieved it. And then even if they achieve that, they say, I should do it again, right? Or um, a, a whole different I should is I'm exhausted, but I should go run my variation because everybody says you should run it three times a day so that you're strong enough for whatever competition is happening, right? You should run it three times in a row. So I should do this. And they feel like they're less than, and it gets to the point where they're not even less than as a dancer, but they're less than as a person um, to themselves. And and I, I think that's what you're talking about, yes? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that,
2: you know, it, it's, You go on to say it's so, uh, the I should leads to I'm guilty. I didn't do enough. I should have done three. I only did two. Uh, I let the team down. I'm ashamed. I have trouble making decisions. Uh, It's sort of a negative self-talk or or troubling thoughts that are are there. And I I liked you said that they make it personal rather than uh, that's so important. We must think about that. Um, these negative thoughts that sneak in and when you're not're not, a, we're not um, paying attention they can be relieved by mindfulness practice and uh, training but I have to say that mindfulness training um, takes everybody's talking about it but it takes a long time to learn it it's an, another move thought Process movement thing, and it isn't something you can learn overnight. So it require and it requires group sessions. So I um, propose for now a faster temporary solution. It's not that you need a long term solution, but let's use thought stopping for these nasty thoughts. Um, a technique um, to get rid of the thoughts is recognize you've got them. Ooh, and then to wash it out. Even using a gesture like this can help. Toss it away. Have a little shower, a little mini shower. Yell out loud. I love being in my car when the thoughts come, because then I can say, oh, really loud and nobody can hear me. <laughs> um, so then the, the negative thoughts are gone. And that's great. But I've got this space left. So if I don't fill it up, the other negative thoughts will come and jump in. Oh, look, space, boom. And uh, so I need to fill this up with positive thoughts right away. This is a hard skill to learn. It takes practice to take the negative thought and turn it into a positive. Oh, look, I haven't got that routine yet. Well, just a minute. If I take it and break it down a little bit, more. I need to break it down even more. Maybe I can spend some, I have some time tonight because none of us ever have any time and dancers have no time at all. Their, their agendas are crossed over and uh, calendars are things on top of things. So if I s- spend some time tonight or I focus on how my teacher's been helping me and follow what she's been saying uh, to do well, she's rooting for me. I might even write that on a card, like this kind of a card and put it up on my mirror. My teacher is rooting for me. She believes I can do this, or she wouldn't have asked me on a variation. That card on your mirror can help build self-confidence. She believes in me. She knows I can do it. I can do it. a further uh, difference has been added by Shannon Norton Bates in terms of the positive and the negative. They talk about performance strivings and performance concerns. Uh, strivings are the pursuit of high standards that we've noticed. Concerns uh, worry about performance fears and evaluation. You're always think, feeling that little camera up here watching you. Oh, look, she did it wrong again. Oh, look, she isn't, she isn't standing up. Oh, look, her shoulders are hunched. Oh, look, Um, it's an observing ego, but it's a negative one. And, and it reacts a lot to imperfections.
1: Mm. You know, what, um, what struck me about what you said, just at at the beginning of this topic about being in your car and being able to say things loudly to sort of combat those negative thoughts. Um, I know this sounds crazy, but a lot of dancers, especially in the pre-professional and in the, in the younger age, um, don't realize that they have thoughts. <laughs> they don't hear that they're not comfortable or used to hearing their own voices, and we, as dancers, we feel voiceless, right? we are not supposed to speak up in class. You're not supposed to argue with your director. We don't have that voice. So some of it is just becoming comfortable with figuring out what you personally are thinking. And when you hear those voices in your head, is that what you think? Or is that what your director has said? Or is that what your parents have said? And learning to recognize, are those negative thoughts my negative thoughts or like, is that really what I think? And, and learning to just hear your own voice, it can be revolutionary, I think for a lot of dancers.
0: I, I think that's so true. I remember I was definitely well into adulthood when I realized I am not my thoughts. Like I can think something, but that doesn't mean that that's what I believe. Um, And, and it is kind of an interesting thing that we're not taught as we're growing up. So I'm, I'm really glad that you pointed that out, Jen, because right, we can, we can think a very bad thought, for example, but that doesn't mean that we believe it to be true or that we actually want that it's, we can separate ourselves from that. So that's super interesting. Um, So Bonnie, can you talk a little bit more about the variables that steer a dancer into either adaptive or maladaptive perfection? Um, What the differences are, what we should be looking for, and what the factors are outside the dancer that can affect how they um, choose to strive for success?
2: Well, Linda, both you and Janice dancers have already alluded to this. The first variable that that makes good, differentiates between good and bad perfectionism is the dance culture itself. The culture demands an ideal body. The culture demands flexibility. And those of you out there in the Bendy Bodies group know about this. It demands turnout. Uh, Now, it's not so much now, but dancers uh, work to achieve a certain body, an aesthetic, stamina, strength, gradually this culture is easing up these standards, but they—they they, there's no doubt they were there. Dance education employs self-scrutiny. Just what you're saying, I have to think of my thoughts, I have to think of this, I have to think what I'm doing. Uh, since the millennium, there's been attention to the motivational climate in dance education, which is wonderful and we're all uh, rooting for that. Uh, it's ha- And it's had a significant impact on how much perfectionism we're seeing. Further, it's um, it's known that the social environment where mistakes are noted uh, and outstanding performance is valued, that sets the stage for negative perfectionism and the linked anxiety I talked about, anxiety about performance. Um, so they're very closely aligned there. It's the culture.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Jan,
1: what do you think? Well, I think yes to all of that, of course. <laughs> um, I was saying something to Linda earlier in, in a text conversation about um, the culture, just looking back even to when dance was so supremely glorified, you know, and thinking about every Little girl wanted to watch the red shoes and wanted to to be in the red shoes and wanted to be the woman in the red shoes, which is kind of sick now (laughs) you think about that, Mm -hmm. because she is in an abusive relationship, both personally and professionally with the director of the ballet company. And she literally dances herself to death to please him, right? And yet we were all like, oh, that's amazing. She's so lucky. She's <laughs> dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, and then just even moving forward, Linda, you had mentioned um center stage, you know, the movie center stage, which aimed to take a, a healthier look at it and to kind of try to shine a little light into it. Um, I thought that Black Swan, the movie with Natalie Portman, did a good job of sort of showing some of the reality of it, but also that the reality of it is not healthy, right? That they were saying, hey, this is not healthy. This is not normal. They weren't trying to glorify it, at least. They weren't trying to glorify where she was emotionally and mentally. Um, but just so much of our culture, so many of the TV shows, the reality TV shows with the, that follow different studios, Um, Even if they don't intend to, kids sit down and watch that and they see if you're watching a, a TV show about a big dance studio and they're consistently casting the kids who have the most flexibility or who are the most assertive and dominant in the dressing room or um, who stay after every day and and come early every day, even when they shouldn't, when they should be going home and resting, who push through the pain. Um, If those are the ones that are getting cast the most and getting all the plum rolls and getting pushed up front, then the little girls and boys who are watching those TV shows at home, are gonna go, oh, that's what I have to do. That's that's what I should be doing. Even if their own studio isn't like that, their own studio could be lovely, but they see so much of it in that culture. They see so much of it on um, social media that it's really hard to avoid getting those messages these days, even if your personal studio is, is trying its best to approach it in a healthy way. I think that's a really good point. And I think reality, I like to
0: use air quotes for reality because reality TV, but it blurs the, especially for the young, super young impressionable dancer or, you know, any other type of reality TV show, it kind of blurs the line between reality and entertainment and, and with social media and everything can definitely um, increase those challenges.
2: So there are some other factors, uh, Linda. Uh, they um, are extrinsic factors outside the self. Uh, one uh, artistic director said to me, it's all about casting, you know, from the very first nutcracker, everybody wants to be Clara. And some people hold on to it for years that they never got to be Clara. Uh, uh, So they're not quite good enough. Uh, And and Clara is often chosen simply because she has long hair and fits the costume. But as students don't know that. As students grow older, they're likely to experience more competition, however, in their own school, because they're getting better and they're staying. Then uh, in the summer intensive, more competition. At larger competitions or conventions such as YAGP, uh, students, and again, you're watching online to see how these people uh, live and they even do backstage what they're feeling. Unhealthy competition can promote perfectionistic attitudes and interestingly enough, in turn, that decreases creativity. Teachers report the groups that used to have fun and really enjoyed traveling to the competition can instantly turn and become self-critical, faced with superior competitors. Their teachers say they just fall apart. And the teachers are looking to us in terms of psychological skills that these students can can take um, and learn from so that they can uh, get rid of this uh, unhealthy rivalry. Uh, Santa Norton Bates looked at two types of learning environment. The task oriented in uh, a kind of climate that promotes individual learning and everybody is of equal value. It's cooperative and collaborative and students are encouraged to set their own intentions. I, I love that Jennifer when your students said, that's enough. I've done it, that's, that's my goal for today. And uh, long-term goals, how they're going to get to the gala, the exams, the audition. And we'll talk a bit about that later, but to stay with this type of learning, the second type of learning is ego-involving, a climate that in that's often seen in elite conservatories. It promotes negative comparisons. The teacher may ask for somebody to demonstrate and to show how to do it. Uh, or worse, uh, the teacher may ask somebody to demonstrate to point out the negatives. And equally demeaning, and I've seen this happening in some, uh, particularly Irish dancing lately, everybody gets a trophy no matter what. They get some sort of award. And uh, that's, that's very demeaning. Uh, in many elite conservatives, competition is just accepted. Apprentices are competing to get into the company. Uh, this culture may extend as far as rivalry between teachers uh, to have more winning students. And in that kind of environment, um, it's easy for students to shift from task-focused to uh, outcome-focused. And I wonder if you've seen this in a studio, Jen, or or, um, in your experience, people have reported this and moved from one studio to another because of this kind of
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I see a lot of it, most of which I won't talk about in public. (laughs) But, um, but I think, I think that it's, it's there, even in the best schools, there's that little bit of ego, you know, and it's so hard to, to let go of that. Um, The healthiest schools that I see are the ones that say, um, if a dancer is injured, I've seen some schools say, well, can you just get through Nutcracker? And I've seen other schools say, hey, there's going to be other nutcrackers, you get healthy. And, and not realizing the ones who are asking them to just sort of push through nutcracker, not realizing the implications of what they're saying, right? Um, but sort of putting that burden unintentionally on the child to, to make their nutcracker look better or to help them get through what they're trying to get through. Or um, if you see, uh, I know a school not one that I work with regularly, but um, a school that had several years ago, a dancer with a very clear eating disorder. And several of the dancers had said, we're concerned, we're worried about it. And the school said, oh yes, yeah, so are we. And then yet turned around and, and had her be sort of their, their face of their company at their, comp- it was a competition studio space, so their company at their competitions, you know, that kind of thing. And so they would say one thing, but then clearly something else was, happening because they thought, well, sure, that's unhealthy, but also she looks so good. Let's put her forward and let's put it out there, you know, and the dancer that was 10 years ago, the dancer is, is healthy now and, and there was a healthy outcome for it, but it's so hard for those studios to not say, oh, but I mean, I know, but, and to, and to put our egos on that back shelf you know i'm just as guilty of it i want to see my dancers do well and i want to have them get out there and be successful and amazing um but the 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 ego driven studios the ego driven companies the the places where you can see that the director is starting to get that little bit of a god complex and um casting capriciously and making clear examples of bringing up a 16 year old through the ranks and then casting her in, in principal roles um, to say, I can do whatever I want. And that poor girl has to live with the the social pain that comes with that when the rest of the company has to deal with it. So you definitely see that. I do think that, especially over the past year, Um, with all of the mental health issues that are coming to the forefront in dance, I do think that's starting to be addressed. Um, I think dancers are starting to get that voice and to start to see just because the director wants to make me do this, or just because my teachers are pushing me to do this, maybe that's not the best. So I do see that the, the, the task driven is starting to become more prevalent, I think. And hopefully as dancers find their voices, it will continue to be that way. And as as dance studios and dance teachers let go, there's another one of my soap boxes, is they let go of saying, well, this is the way it's always been, or this is how it was done to me, so they should have to go through this too, right? I didn't get to use gel pads in my point shoes, so neither should they. I suffered with lamb's wool. Well, great, they didn't have gel pads then, <laughs> right? <laughs> so learning to let go of that and see what's important for the kids, I think is so important and so valuable.
2: If you, I, I was waiting to see if Linda had an example she was burning to share, but if not, I'd, I'd like to share one. I, this year I met a wonderful teacher named Kim McCatto, uh of Elevated Dance Project in Idaho, and I have to share her name because of the wonderful innovation she and her co-director Melissa Larson have brought. They're looking at teaching life lessons through dance. Uh, rather rather than the other way around, such as a healthy lifestyle, community awareness, self-compassion. These are all things we'd want to share with children of 9, 10, 11, 12. Respect for others. They focus on these themes throughout the whole year. They work on building confidence, learning responsibility, compassion and kindness, and respect. I love this. Um, They actively encourage everyone around them um, including their competitors. So their dancers will often line up when the competitors come off stage and high five them um, as they go by. So this kind of attitude, um, they also learn task analysis and goal setting, just like you said, that's enough for today. Um, I just thought that that's th- we're beginning to see studios like that that are saying, we're not here mm-hmm. to turn, we're here to to learn.
0: Yes. Absolutely. That reminds me of a saying that I heard the other day, and I might not get it exactly correct, but it's easier to raise healthy children than to fix broken adults.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, so many of these um, dance educators, studio owners, you know, do have this opportunity to really um, have a huge impression on young people. And so I think that's so fabulous, Bonnie, that example that you shared. That's really great. Oh,
1: wonderful what they're doing. hmm So, so we've talked about perfectionism. Um, We've talked about the stress that comes with that. Um, And then what is the relationship sort of between perfectionism and stress and anxiety and how those all fit together?
2: Yep. So you've brought it just where we're going. Uh, Stress is related to anxiety. So the pursuit of perfection can be a crucial part of stress, developing that stress Uh, bubble. Uh, Stress puts a dancer at risk for injury, mental disorder, including depression and even suicide. Uh, Anxiety and anxiety uh, around uh, dance leads to eating disordered or reduced energy availability. Mm -hmm. Further, perfectionism is related to social anxiety, not just anxiety. And social anxiety, in psychiatry, we think of as stage fright, as performance anxiety, that people actually cannot go to what they, to the place where they're going to perform. They can't concentrate; they're distracted, um, and so naturally, they
0: it, if they do go, they have a poorer performance than they could give. That's really important because we know that people who have hypermobility are at uh, greatly increased risk of anxiety. At least most of the studies show that, like some eight to 16 times increased risk of anxiety. And um, there was even a study back in 2012 in the British Journal of um, Psychiatry that showed differences in uh, key emotion processing brain regions, including increased volume of the amygdala. And so there's a lot of really interesting research out there on hypermobility and different um, conditions like uh, even obsessive compulsive disorder and um, ADHD, attention problems and things like that. So this is a super, super important topic for the hypermobile population.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you say, the the amygdala is way down in the bottom in here, um, and and it's the emotional center. But it set, fires off information up to this prefrontal region, which is your judgment, your planning,
0: your organization. Woo, they all go out the window if you get too mm-hmm. wrought up. Mm-hmm. So that's where the thought stopping is probably really important to do sooner rather than later, because once. You, um, I, I'm so glad that you're talking about the stress because stress is also a huge activator of mast cells and causes degranulation of mast cells. And once you get that, and then you get the release of cortisol and all the other physiologic things that happen in the body once we're under stress, it's harder to stop it, right? So if we learn to stop those thoughts earlier, rather than later when there's all these physiologic things happening in the body that are, it's biology. It's not, you know, um, judging ourselves harshly that, oh, we should be able to stop this. But if we can recognize those thoughts earlier, I think that's probably a really key um, strategy that people can use.
2: Linda, is there a podcast that tells us more about that? So we can hear more about that at another time?
0: About which aspect of it?
2: about the mast cells and the physiology of the,
0: of the anxiety and, and, and the stress. There's a fantastic journal article that talks about that that I can put um, a link to in the show notes, and I happen to know the author quite well. So maybe Jen and I see, can see if we can get an interview with that person. Yeah. also. So
1: maybe there will be a podcast. Yes. Yes.
0: It's, it's a, it's <laughs> that a, would a, be nice. Yeah. It's a really challenging thing because these conditions are often not recognized for so long. People go to these appointments and they're told they're basically told that they're crazy. Well, what does that do. That just increases your stress level, which is part of the problem in the first Mm -hmm. place. So it it really creates this vicious cycle and um and we also know that people that are hypermobile have increased interoception so we have increased awareness of what's going on inside of our body so as these things are happening we're more and more aware whereas people who are not hypermobile are they're kind of oblivious you know sometimes i feel like i can feel every single cell as it's moving through my body <laughs> and my husband he's he's he'll be bleeding from something and he has no clue. honey you're bleeding Oh, am I? <laughs> you know, so so I think that um, I, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to make sure that we have an, an episode specifically about that because it is an important,
2: so important to remember that our bodies can can sometimes be enemies; they can fight back. Um, but yes. but I was going to go on to talk a little bit about um, something you can do uh, in terms of. Uh, preventing this perfectionism getting in the way of a poor performance, um, and that is the task analysis that uh, that the Mikado uh, people at the Mikado Studio were were doing. Uh, training as little as ten minutes or half an hour a month—not every day—ten minutes a month um, can get can help you set reasonable goals task analysis, and we've we've done the research, significantly improve the performance. Uh, once the goals are set, a dancer can plan, can use time management. If a dancer has a featured role or is to perform a solo uh, in the spring, the earlier she is cast, the better. She needs to plan. If she's nervous, she may procrastinate, very risky but very tempting. Well, I'll do it later. No, 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 no. no. If she breaks it down now and is able to accomplish the elements, then she can work on the feelings and emotions. Um, She doesn't have to add in all those other, spend time with the worry, spend time with the negative thoughts. Um, So now we're talking about outcome goals and process goals. So process goals are the ones she's going to set up. They're much more effective than, um, than outcome goals. Outcome goals, are, I'm going to dance a perfect performance. Um, but process goals help to maximize performance. And they're possible. And they're within the dancer's control. So we use a, a little an acronym called SMART. And so they're specific. They're manageable. They're achievable. They're not unrealistic. I can't do 32 uh, French fruites tomorrow night that's not never gonna happen. Uh they're relevant uh to what you want and you have a target date to finish. So um that's the smart uh way to proceed
0: with task analysis. That's great. And and what about uh parents? How can they recognize that their child is stressed and anxious and what what can they do about that?
2: Yes. Okay, ballet parents. Um, again, you can have good <laughs> ballet parents and bad ballet parents, and uh, not all parents who are concerned about their kids or come to ask about things um, from from the staff are are negative parents, are pushy parents. Sometimes they're genuinely concerned that this dance culture is bringing out some things, some traits in their children that they're not sure are healthy. Uh, so for the parents. Um, if you're looking at your, your dancer who seems to be over-worried, is, are they constantly seeking reassurance? Are they so overworried um, that you can't uh, help them to calm down? They can't say, oh yes, I remember, I'm going to be okay, yes. Um, are they really afraid of the performance? Would they rather give up the chance? Most dancers I know, even though they're very nervous, may be nervous about the performance, they still want it. They realize that this is an opportunity. They want to be out there. Uh, that's what they're working for. They, they want to be on stage. Right now, um, we're talking at a time of, of the um, COVID pandemic and uh, that many dancers are, are do not have the opportunity to be on the stage. Well... I've, had, I've been talking to some of the dancers as they go back and have performed again, and the euphoria they feel in returning is so wonderful. So a dancer who doesn't want to perform is unusual. A dancer who would give up an opportunity to perform, that's unusual uh, for parents. Are they so tense that when they walk into a room, other people recognize it? Uh, their aunt or uncle says, what's, what's wrong with Martha today? She seems very tense. They also have difficulty sleeping. Now, all athletes have trouble sleeping before an event, Um, and and that's been documented. But we're talking about real trouble sleep. They can't can't get to sleep, then they get to sleep. They have early waking. They can't get back to sleep. Um, So uh, a performance psychologist or counselor can often help sort this out for you. Um, and so parents may want to ask about that from the studio. Some studios have a counselor on their wellness team. And what the counselor can also help the parents with is recommending if, if a more intensive uh, management of the anxiety needs to be sought rather than uh, working through and psychological skills training, do you need a medical referral as, as you've said, uh, Linda, um, and I wanna call you Dr. Linda at this point, um, we mustn't forget the physiology. Uh, and that as much as we might be trying, there may be something that physiologically um, might need to be done. There's another variable um, that I'd like to talk about, and that's about individual child development or um, what we call ontology, the growing up. Uh, a man named Dean Nelsky uh, notes that much early reinforcement for outstanding performance uh, leads to performance anxiety, to perfectionism and to performance becoming the basis of your self-esteem. Applause is love. Um, so the little dancer does the first recital and gets flowers and grandma comes and everybody's excited and it's wonderful and and so on. And, and uh, as the dancer progresses, she's better and she gets better roles and public came and she goes to a competition and gets a scholarship. Uh, and some, but then one day there's some critical notes and the whole thing falls apart. Why? Because she had based her whole self on her ability to dance. She didn't have other things. So it's very important that dancers uh, and parents acknowledge that dancers not be just uniformly dancers. And I think about a course line and, and the uh, main dancer saying, I, I am a dancer, all I need is the music. That was her life, that was it. Uh, so a dancer like that only feels accepted if she's doing well, if she has a down part, her self-esteem falls off. It's dependent on other people's view of her, not her own view of what she's enjoying. Did you have a good time? Did you enjoy it? I don't know Linda but do you have any examples of that where um, the dancer be that's it that's what she is and she has if she has to think of a future career
0: there's nothing else oh my gosh do I ever uh, so when I was dancing and started having getting injured my entire identity was wrapped up in dance so when I was 16 17 and um, you know wasn't able to dance I remember going to I would still go to class because at that time you, know, you you're supposed to still go and watch and I would just sit there and cry through the entire thing and I would just cry at home and I didn't know what I was if I couldn't dance. So you know that was a difficult phase to to go through and figuring out if I can't be a dancer then what am I going to do with my life? So um, yeah, I definitely personally can com- completely relate to that. And so I think as much as we can have different parts of our identity that, you know, I also love to learn new things and I love animals and, you know, now I'm a mom and a wife and, you know, all these different aspects of myself besides dance. So I think that's really helpful. And those
2: of us in dance medicine are so grateful that you didn't continue (laughs) dancing or teaching (laughs) that you're here to help us understand some of the
0: aspects of medicine, it's wonderful. I think that's one of the funny lessons in life is that sometimes some of the worst things that happen to us can later be things that we grow from, that we can really, um, you know, they talk about post-traumatic stress um, disorder, of course, but post-traumatic growth. So both both then and when I wasn't able to work anymore as an anesthesiologist, that was pretty devastating to my self-esteem. I went through a really difficult phase, um, you know, then also, and little did I know then that I would be doing this and able to reach so many more people. So um, yeah, it's... Sometimes things in life turn out very differently than what we than what we expect, but that's where keeping an open mind is
1: super important and broadening our horizons. Absolutely, um, a, a lot of times when I work with my pre-professional dancers, you know, you chat while you're working out and. I will always ask them, maybe our second or third session, um, if you weren't dancing, what would you be doing? Or what do you think you would want to do when you're finished with your dance career? Not saying if you don't make it, or if you get injured, but saying, what what would you And There's always the dancers who go, you know what, I really love architecture, or I think I would want to. And they've they've already thought about that. They have a whole personality outside of dance, even though they may be pursuing it quite passionately. Um, And they're the ones who get that deer in the headlights look like, why did you just say that? That freaks me out. I can't even think about that. I don't want to think about that. And those are the ones that we're going to have some long conversations, <laughs> but you see that those very distinct personalities there. And I think, that, um, I think that the perfectionism can be in both of them, but as we said, it's either personal or it's impersonal. Um, and you, you see that distinct difference. What, what if though, Bonnie, what if the perfectionism is in the parents? So we've talked about parents helping their kids with stress and anxiety, but what if the parents are the perfectionists and how does that rub off on the, the pre-professional dancer?
2: Very dangerous. It can actually uh, embed the perfectionism in, in the child who's uh, got some perfectionistic traits and the parent says, oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. Right. Why don't you take notes? Uh from what your teacher says. So I'll get your pad and pencil seek. And while that might be in many things, I'm recommending journaling and taking notes. Uh, in this instance where it's an example where the parent is pushing and concerned. And of course we want parents who are concerned, who are going to make sure that their children don't end up with uh, a problem uh, because they're pushing too much. Um, I think psychoanalytic theory comes in here a little bit. Uh, Where the dancer becomes uh, has uses perfectionism as a defense against feeling uh, defective or inadequate, and so in both of those instances, where the parent is pushing too much, where the child is saying, "Uh, "I'm I'm not okay. I've got to be more perfectionistic, otherwise I'm useless. I'm nothing. I'm no good." Uh, So then they set unrealistic goals. And they prove their own point. You can't make that goal. So um, yes, you are you you are inadequate at that um, because you've just set an unrealistic goal. So uh, helping the parents to see that too. Uh, often in in situations where I see a child who's anxious, um, the um, I will ask. I will say, "Are you are you the most anxious worry wart in the family? Are you the worry wart?" And no, I'm not the worry ward. My mom is the worry ward, or my brother is the worry ward. And, and then we have a little talk in the family about where did all this worry come from, and, uh, and it can be generational right back. So, the, and then that usually requires some um, work with an expert around family therapy and helping the family readjust their goals.
0: And that's really interesting because being around anxious people makes us more anxious, right? It, it, that, that energy. And since there's a hereditary component to both anxiety and hypermobility, it's, it makes sense that that would be something that would be present more in families. There's
2: uh, one other
0: thing that uh, has come out in the research that I might want to just tuck away
2: uh, for teachers that um, perfectionists tend to get discouraged quite some some group of them uh, that when they don't meet the standards they've set and they tend to drop out, very talented young people will, will say, I'm so good, awful. I just quit and they're just gone. So rather than I'm saying I'm useless and they say, I'm not going to have any more to do with that. I'm done. I'm done with, I'm done with soccer. I'm done with hockey. I'm done with dance. So uh, one has to be aware of that. If, if, uh, particularly as studio teachers, if you don't want to see dropouts of the people that you thought were
1: had good potential. Yep. Well, I remember very clearly myself, I, I hated working on fuerte turns because I wasn't good at them. And I would rather not do them than to do them and not be good at them. And so I, I I remember being 14 and and uh, my best friend would say, hey, let's stay after in the studio and work on forte turns. And I'm like, no, no, you can go ahead. You can stay and work. And she would go in there and she'd look terrible and she'd fall and she didn't care. And she'd get up and she just kept practicing and practicing. And I just I didn't want people to see me less than perfect. And so I didn't want to work through that sloppy, messy phase. And so I was never amazing at forte turns. I mean, I could knock them out barely, but it was never something fantastic. And that's. Those are the things that I look back and regret. I regret not allowing myself to fail and not allowing myself to try things that I knew I wouldn't be good at um, and not giving myself that grace. That, those are the things that I think my perfectionism kept me from and kept me from developing entirely different skill sets maybe in dance.
2: But, you know, you, do, you are talking about mastery. You've mastered the turns enough so that you are confident enough that you can stay in the profession and do them. And if needed, I mean, uh, mastery is so related to getting yourself up to the point where you say, I can do this. I have enough energy. I feel I can do this. And that's what you're talking about. I wish I'd had more energy to say, take a chance, try it. You know? Nobody's gonna see me, I'm gonna fall over, but there's me in the mirror, you know? So take a chance, see if this would work, see if that would work. So, and so getting yourself aroused enough for the performance, for the audition, for the exam is very important and that takes practice. And that might be a whole other session that we talk about, about arousal and energy um, and how to build enough energy. Um, but it is it is a body sensation and it's crucial to practice. So uh, while dancers are, it's not enough to just plan and organize. You have to try. You have to give yourself a chance. Um, I love this. There is a new kind of thought coming out through self-compassion. And many teachers are saying before a class, give yourself uh, this class with self-compassion. Uh, allow yourself to... Make mistakes to try things to be good enough. I love the good enough. So if you walk away from today saying, "I was good enough," I stayed through that whole thing. I was a little bored and I wanted to leave, but I stayed and I got to the end to where she said, "I was good enough." You're good enough. So I have just one little thing uh, that I I'd like to, and I thank you so much for letting me talk on like this. But I. Like to share one little uh, anonymous saying that I that I uh, came across lately, like the one Linda came across and on uh, it was the voice she'd heard. Um, mine is on a dr- a dream written down with a date becomes a goal. A goal broken down into steps becomes a plan, and a plan backed by action, taking a chance, makes dreams come true you will master that task and move on to the next one. That's Sort of, I love that when
1: I found that. That is so great. I'll have to get you to email that to me. I love that. Well, Bonnie, it sounds like, if I'm going to do a really crude 60-second summary of all of this, it sounds like we are acknowledging that there is perfectionism out there, right? And that the... one of the first things we have to do as as artists is is acknowledge that, if that's something that we are wrestling with and um, maybe being able to start and recognize um, and form our own thoughts and choose what thoughts we have and try to take control uh, of not having the negative thoughts and filling it with positive thoughts instead Um, and and being able to say, are those my thoughts? Are those someone else's thoughts? And then trying to, to train our brain to help alleviate stress, as you talk about, about doing the training um, and, and sort of learning to not take failure personally. <laughs> that um, if we fail on that turn, that's okay. As you said, it's okay to be good enough and it's okay to say that was good enough and I tried and failed and that's okay. That is that a fair summary <laughs> later. Right, and
2: I think we'll all take the image of your dancer Saying that's enough I, I I did what I came to do today. I don't have to take on a whole new set
1: that's enough mm-hmm. being able to walk away that's so hard and, yeah. and as
0: and as parents because there'll, there'll be different ages of people listening to this so for anyone that's a parent, I think it's so important, Bonnie, what you were saying about if we have that perfectionistic attitude as a parent, how that can impact the child because you know, we all love our children and we want them to be, we want to raise them well, but sometimes we don't realize the things that we're doing that are detrimental until, until later when they're a lot older. So I think that's really, really helpful for parents, especially parents of young children.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. Well, well, this has been so great to chat with you today, Bonnie, and we would just so appreciate you coming on again and uh, chatting with us about this super, super important topic, perfectionism. Yes. Thank you, Bonnie, so much again. You're welcome. And, and that's what it was. It
2: was a chat of our sharing our, our thoughts. And so that's why it was so great.
0: Thank you for having me. Of course, anytime. And you all have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, we have been speaking with Dr. Bonnie Robson, psychiatrist and performing arts medicine specialist. Bonnie, thank you again so very much for taking the time to come on the Bendy Bodies podcast today and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of bendy bodies with the hypermobility md where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes be sure to subscribe to the bendy bodies youtube channel as well thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions Visit our website, www.bendybodies.org, for more information. For a limited time, you could win an autographed copy of the popular textbook, Disjointed, navigating the diagnosis and management of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorders, just by sharing what you love about the Bendy Bodies podcast. On Instagram, tag us at Bendy underscore Bodies, and on Facebook at Bendy Podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-hosts and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This podcast is intended for general education only and does not constitute medical advice. Your own individual situation may vary. Do not make any changes without first seeking your own individual care from your physician. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies Podcast was brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.